I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And today we are thrilled to celebrate the 150th anniversary of the 13th Amendment. On December 6, 1865, the 13th Amendment was ratified after Georgia became the last state to approve it. The brief amendment officially ended the practice of slavery in the United States. Joining us in studio to discuss the history, meaning, and legacy of the 13th Amendment is Tom Donnelly, our great partner at the Constitutional Accountability Center in Washington, where he is message director and counsel. Uh, Tom will describe how the National Constitution Center and the Constitutional Accountability Center have launched a five-year second founding initiative to commemorate, debate, and celebrate the 150th anniversary of the Reconstruction Amendments. And joining us by phone are two of the nation's leading constitutional scholars and contributors to the National Constitution Center's interactive constitution. Jamal Green is vice dean and professor of law at Columbia Law School, where he teaches constitutional law and theory. He worked with Jennifer McMason Award of Notre Dame Law School to write about the 13th Amendment for the National Constitution Center's interactive constitution. And Randy Barnett is the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at Georgetown Law Center, where he directs the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. He is also a member of the Coalition of Freedom Advisory Board, which is supervising the interactive constitution for the National Constitution Center. Tom, Jamal, Randy, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Great to be here. Wonderful. So glad to have all of you. Well, on Wednesday, President Barack Obama de delivered remarks at the U.S. Capitol in commemoration of the 150th anniversary of the 13th Amendment. Let's listen to a short clip from his address. At its heart, the question of slavery was never simply about civil rights. It was about the meaning of America, the kind of country we wanted to be, whether this nation might fulfill the call of its birth. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among those are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. President Lincoln understood that if we were ever to fully realize that founding promise. It meant not just signing an Emancipation Proclamation, not just winning a war. It meant making the most powerful collective statement we can in our democracy, etching our values into our Constitution. He called it a king's cure for all the evils. Tom, I'm Tell us about your reaction to President Obama's statement and tell our listeners more about this great second founding initiative, which we launched uh, uh, earlier this week at the National Archives in Washington with a phenomenal symposium on the 13th Amendment. We're hoping together, the National Constitution Center and the Constitutional Accountability Center with an advisory board co-chaired by Justice O'Connor to commemorate the amendments over the next five years. Tell our listeners about that great initiative. 
Thank you so much, Jeff. It, it is just so heartening to hear the president, um, you know, highlighting this important anniversary using that specific language, uh, referring to the 13th Amendment of, uh, as the king's cure. I mean, more than anything, what we're trying to do is, through this initiative with the National Constitution Center, to really bring the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, back really to the center of American constitutional dis discourse, both among academics, but also in the, the public writ large, to get public officials, to get average citizens, to understand the transformative power of these amendments, these amendments that were uh, ratified after the Civil War that ended slavery, uh, wrote the promise of equality into our Constitution, protected fundamental rights, um, protected the right to vote for African Americans, um, and to really get them to understand um, the, 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 the transformation um, that this period brought to the country, that it really, the Constitution really becomes the fully inspiring document that it is today, thanks to the work of President Lincoln and his generation after the Civil War. And the hope is that through discussions like the one we're having today, where we bring people from across the ideological spectrum together um, to discuss the meaning of these amendments, that we can really capture their, their magic and their, their importance to the American story. Beautifully said. Um, well, let's jump right into that magic. And uh, Jamal Green, you wrote with Jennifer McMason Award for the Interactive Constitution a common statement about what you both agreed the 13th Amendment was originally intended to achieve. Tell our listeners about what you and Professor Award agreed about the 13th Amendment. Uh, so thank you, Jeff. Uh, so uh, it actually wasn't so difficult for uh, me and Professor McElroy to uh, agree on uh, the, the, the both the original and the current understanding of the uh, 13th Amendment as understood by the Supreme Court. Um, as we uh, as we wrote in on our in our contribution, and as is uh, certainly clear from the text of the amendment and its history, the most straightforward thing that the 13th Amendment accomplished is emancipation. Obviously, for uh, four million slaves, mostly of African descent, uh, mostly in the uh, southern border, border states of the United States following the Civil War. Important uh, for our listeners to distinguish this from the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, which uh, also had a liberating effect on slaves, but those were only slaves held in southern states uh, uh, who, were, who had rebelled. Uh, so not, no slaves were in union control. And more importantly, the Emancipation Proclamation was an executive proclamation, not a constitutional amendment, and not even a federal statute. So uh, this really solidified the, the status of slavery as something that is um, forever prohibited within the United States. Uh, a couple of interesting things about the 13th Amendment that make it um, somewhat special. It's, uh, it, there's no uh, reference to state action in the 13th Amendment, so it's stated almost in a kind of passive voice. It says, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime wherever the party shall be duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. So it's a quite a broad statement. Uh, and uh, it also uh, refers directly to slavery. Uh, it's the first time in the Constitution that slavery is directly mentioned, and of course it's mentioned in the context of eliminating it. Now, the 13th Amendment has two sections, Section 1, which is the prohibition on slavery and involuntary servitude, and then Section 2, which empowers Congress uh, to enforce the first section of the amendment by appropriate legislation. Uh, and so we have to think about those two provisions uh, in, their, in their own particular context. Uh, section 1 uh, on slavery and involuntary servitude has been interpreted by the court to go uh, so somewhat beyond 
the chattel slavery uh, that we associate uh, with the, the 13th Amendment, uh, but not far beyond. So, uh, so that certainly it prohibits slavery as we would typically understand it. But when we think about involuntary servitude, that also extends to uh, to, uh, to to a specific uh, performance of, of service contracts. It extends to um, peonage laws that make people people work in order to pay off a debt. Um, but uh, but the Section One has not been interpreted as extending very far beyond um, these uh, these basic practices, and it's also uh, it also has some some limitations. So certain practices that we might think of as forms of monetary servitude, uh, so prison labor uh, falls uh, mostly within the exceptions clause that says except as a punishment for crime. Uh, military service, compulsory military service, uh, has uh, not been interpreted as something that falls within the Thirteenth Amendment. Compulsory jury service public service in general. As to Section 2, though, the court has recognized that uh, that Section 2 of the amendment, which empowers Congress, might be read uh, to allow Congress to go somewhat beyond uh, slavery itself, to reach what the court has referred to as the badges and incidents of slavery. And here, this was certainly originally understood, the congressional power was originally understood to uh, enable Cong- Congress to do some work in dismantling the social system that surrounded slavery. So uh, in not enabling uh, former slaves, free slaves, to uh, own property, uh, to have very restrictive labor laws that restricted their ability to work in various ways, uh, those kinds of, uh, of additional practices that go beyond slavery, Congress can certainly reach under the 13th Amendment. And uh, in, in modern times, uh, the court is going, Congress has gone further than that, and the court has, has, uh, has blessed that. Uh, so uh, in the Civil Rights Act of 1866, Congress uh, passed a law banning racial discrimination with respect to certain kinds of civil rights. Certain of those of the sections of that act survive today as Section 1982 and Section 1981, uh, and those prohibit uh, private racial discrimination in private uh, in, in housing uh, as well as uh, in uh, contracting. Uh, that's been interpreted in a series of recent cases to allow Congress to reach private housing discrimination and also uh, racial discrimination in uh, school admissions uh, via its, 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 uh, its power under Section 2 of the 13th Amendment. So congressional power is, uh, goes beyond uh, the underlying Section 1 of the amendment, but uh, the core part of the amendment has been interpreted to basically apply to slavery, involuntary servitude, with some Uh, some exceptions and some limitations on the margins. Thank you so much for that comprehensive and extremely helpful introduction. Uh, Randy Barnett, uh, what what do you agree or disagree in, uh, Professor, in in Jamal's uh, statements? And also, um, you have written that original—I want to focus on your view of the original understanding of the 13th Amendment before we talk about its contemporary applications. You've written that it was disputed at the time of the framing about what kind of private conduct that amounted to badges of incidents of slavery should be reachable by Section 2, but you said that it was appropriate that under Section 2, Republicans in Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and the Freedmen's Bureau Act, although the Supreme Court disagreed about that. You say, I think the better analysis of the 13th Amendment was explained by Justice Harland dissenting in the civil rights cases. Tell us more about your understanding of the original understanding of the 13th Amendment. Right. Well, uh, thanks again for having me. I don't have anything to disagree with uh, Jamal's um, summary, um, which is kind of remarkable in itself. It just goes to show that the original meaning of the text 
is not always in dispute. Um, and it's only in dispute sometimes. Uh, and But I, I just want to sort of underscore one thing he said, um, uh, and that is that um, and this, in a way, it sort of um, amps up what the president said, and that is that the 13th Amendment was far more necessary than some people realize. Some people think that the Emancipation Proclamation freed all of the slaves, and therefore the 13th Amendment just sort of put an exclamation point on something that was already a, a fait accompli. But this is not true. The Emancipation Proclamation uh, only freed the slaves that were in rebel hands, uh, did not free the slaves in the border states did not sleep free the slaves in Tennessee. Um, and um, it, it did it did go farther than some people think because it actually freed slaves uh, who would join the Union Army and their families. Um, but uh, and, th- and those slaves did come from the border states. But nevertheless, uh, at the end of the war, there were still many slaves that had never been touched by the Union Army and were still on the plantations where they were under the control of their masters. And um, it was an open question as to whether um, the Emancipation Proclamation, which was uh, uh, which was in, which was justified as an exercise of the president's war-making powers, as a mili- as an act of military necessity, would actually have the legal effect of forever freeing the slaves that were already freed, um, or would be interpreted later by the courts as freeing slaves that had not been reached by Union forces and had been literally freed at the time. And so there were a lot of people who were still held in bondage at the time the 13th Amendment was passed. The 13th Amendment was passed in part uh, because um, emancipation does not equal abolition. I think that's one of the important takeaways here. Emancipation meant the individuals were free, but slavery itself had not been abolished in the United States. It could not be abolished by the Emancipation Proclamation. It could only be abolished under the existing uh, reading of the Constitution by both the Republicans and the Democrats. It could only be abolished by a constitutional amendment. And that's one of the many reasons why the 13th Amendment is so momentous. It abolished slavery. The Emancipation Proclamation did not abolish slavery. Wonderful. Well, there's a great uh, amount of agreement between the two of you on the original understanding of the 13th Amendment. Let us jump to uh, contemporary applications. Uh, Jamal, in your separate statement on the interactive Constitution, which I do want all of our listeners to check out and read for uh, themselves, constitutioncenter.org slash interactive constitution, you say the badges and incidents of racial hierarchy persist in the U.S. The 13th Amendment authorizes Congress to address them. The 13th Amendment should permit Congress to redress further issues, including bidding practices that exclude minority contractors, admissions policies that exclude minorities from selective colleges and universities, and electoral practices such as voter ID laws and abbreviated voting windows. At the same time, you've expressed skepticism of some scholars such as um, uh, who, who have tried to stretch the amendment even further. Tell us more about what you think Section 2 of the amendment empowers Congress to forbid today. Uh, thank you, Jeff, and uh, thank you, Randy. Uh, well, I mean, I should clarify that Part of my view on the 13th Amendment and, uh, and congressional power uh, results from uh, derives from a view about that the provisions of the Constitution that specifically authorize congressional power in general, and I tend to think of those as uh, requiring a substantial amount of deference to the views that Congress has developed. Uh, as I mentioned in the initial statement, I think it's very important in thinking through the constitutional implications of the amendment to separate out Section 1 of the amendment and Section 2, and also to separate out 
what we think judges are going to enforce or should enforce directly versus uh, what kinds of laws Congress can enact. And, and, and further, and I think this is actually quite important, uh, the ways in which the language of the amendment can influence individuals and mobilize them towards social action. So uh, I, have a, I, I believe that Congress is empowered to, uh, through the 13th Amendment, uh, as it's empowered through some other constitutional provisions, to reach the, uh, the, the, the system of marginalization. And when I think about a system of marginalization, I think of it as, uh, as analogous to, to chattel slavery, a hereditary system of marginalization. People um, can be marked and stigmatized on racial grounds, uh, and that those marks uh, of that kind of stigma uh, survive from generation to generation. Um, so pervasive forms of inequality, uh, I think, can be analogized to, to slavery, uh, particularly when they're focused on or based on um, racial markers and can be identified by race. And so I think modern instances of private housing discrimination, modern instances of, uh, of, uh, of the exclusion of minorities from positions of power, uh, I think uh, I think Congress uh, does have the power to reach those under the 13th Amendment. Now, I should be clear that I actually think Congress has the power to reach some of that under the 14th Amendment as well. And so uh, in some ways, it's overdetermined what Congress has the power to do. Uh, but uh, but again, this results from a larger view that I have about congressional power, not really a view about search of amendment as such. Uh, I think the more important point for me, uh, though, is that the function of constitutional language uh, is not just to give a rule of decision in uh, adjudication. It's also to stand as a symbol of what the nation stands for and to, uh, to, uh, to inspire people to, uh, to, to think through what their deep commitments really are. Uh, I think the Constitution is a document for all of us and not just for judges and not just for Congress. And so uh, the key example here is the progressive era labor movement, uh, which thought about labor rights, rights to collective bargaining, rights not to uh, have uh, oppressive um, wage, wage and hour uh, practices in 13th Amendment terms. Uh, they advocated for, uh, for labor laws using the language of coercion and economic coercion from the 13th Amendment. That doesn't mean that a judge should view a failure to bargain in good faith uh, as a violation of the 13th Amendment. Um, that does mean that uh, someone who is trying to mobilize his fellow citizens to enact labor laws uh, and protective laws can use the 13th Amendment as a way of saying that the Constitution that actually protects the values that the person is promoting. Uh, and so, uh, so as a and the, the piece that I wrote uh, for the National Constitution Center online uh, is about constitutional imagination and how the Constitution can inspire people to think about their policy objectives in constitutional terms. I think the 13th Amendment is quite generative in exactly that way. Thank you so much for that. Randy, maybe we'll, I'm interested in whether you agree or disagree with Jamal on congressional power. You have written in a recent essay that the 13th Amendment is evidence of the falsity of the progressive originalist claim that the Commerce Clause gives Congress the power to regulate all activities directly affecting the wealth of the nation. Tell us more about 
why you believe that what you call the Liberty Amendment constrains, uh, reminds us of constraints on Congress's power, and do you agree or disagree with Jamal's vision? Uh, Right. Uh, Well, let me um, go back and and point out that for many, many years, abolitionist radicals were trying to figure out whether Congress had the power to um, address slavery in the states. Um, And I have read extensively in abolitionist uh, literature, uh, and and there was a whole school of thought called constitutional abolitionists who were trying to use the Constitution for this purpose. And in all the uh, in all the people that I read, I never heard anyone claim that Congress could reach slavery within one of the states as a result of the commerce power, which gives Congress the power to regulate commerce among the several states, uh, even cu- when coupled with the Necessary and Proper Clause, which gives Congress the power to make all laws which shall be necessary to carry into execution the commerce power. That, as everybody probably knows who's listening to this program, is the power that was claimed by progressives to justify federal regulation of every aspect of the American economy and has basically been uh, recognized by the court as allowing that uh, with very few limitations. Congress has a general power to regulate economic activity, even wholly intrastate economic activity. Well, if Congress did have the power to regulate wholly intrastate economic activities, then, then from day one of the country, Congress had the power to abolish slavery in the states. Not only did nobody and say that at the time of the founding. Uh, there may have been a few people who thought it, but there's virtually no one who said it. But even the most out there radical abolitionists who were, who were putting forward all kinds of marginal arguments didn't make that claim. And when Republicans came into power and they were looking for ways to abolish slavery because they now had a legislative majority, nobody thought at the time that they had the power under the Commerce Clause to do that. So this is pretty good evidence that both at the time of the founding as well as at the time of the, the, the Reconstruction Amendments, um, up and through the time of the New Deal, that no one really thought that the commerce power went that far. So that's one of the important uh, implications of the 13th Amendment for what the meaning of what the scope of congressional power would be today if the Constitution were read according to its original meaning. The second um, aspect has to do with the scope of the rights that are protected by the Due Process Clause or by the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. Um, And the 13th Amendment tells us an awful lot about that as well, because as has already been noted, it was under the authority of the 13th Amendment that Congress passed the, that the 39th Congress passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which gave uh, which which protected the rights of citizens, regardless of color or condition, previous conditions of servitude, uh, to make and enforce contracts, to sue, be parties, and give evidence, to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property, and to the full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of persons and property as is enjoyed by white citizens. Um, this was passed under the uh, basically through leadership in the Senate. The House passed this. It was cha- it was vetoed by the president as unconstitutional under the Thirteenth Amendment because it w- exceeded the, according to President Johnson, it exceeded Congress's power under Section Two of the Thirteenth Amendment. And there were Republicans in Congress who, notwithstanding the fact that the Republicans voted uh, to override the president's veto, there were there were Republicans in Congress like like Congressman Bingham. Um, of Ohio, who thought that, uh, well, maybe, you know, we are on, on, on thin ice here passing the Civil Rights Act. And as a result, um, for this and other reasons, the 14th Amendment was enacted uh, in part to allow to make it 
crystal clear that Congress did have the power to pass this law and also to, to make it part of the Constitution. So when the, when the Democrats came back, they wouldn't repeal the law, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which they strongly said they would do in the minute they got back into Congress. And so what this means is that the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which protects all of the rights I mentioned, does inform what the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States that were protected uh, by the Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. So it is by means of the 13th Amendment, then the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and the 14th Amendment that we can realize that the so-called, what we today would call economic liberties of contract and property, were among the rights that were considered privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States that the court was perfectly justified in protecting um, it, uh, under the Due Process Clause, because part of the due process of law is the ability to go into court and challenge laws as being ultra-virus or beyond the power of the legislature to enact. And for those reasons, um, the 13th Amendment is powerful evidence of both the limited powers of the federal government and also the expansive rights that are enjoyed by American citizens against their own state governments under the 14th Amendment. Uh, powerful words. Jamal, do you agree or disagree with Randy's uh, conclusion? Uh, well, I don't have a lot to disagree with in, uh, in what Randy said. Uh, one, one thing Randy did say is um, if we interpret the Constitution according to its original understanding, and I think uh, I, I do, I, I do think that he's uh, that he's right that the best understanding of congressional power under the Commerce Clause in the 19th century and 18th century would not have uh, permitted. Uh, Congress to abolish slavery as a, as a solely intrastate practice, and, uh, and that the modern interpretation of the Commerce Clause uh, would have been considered by most informed citizens to have been uh, to have been superseded uh, what the power the uh, Constitution gives Congress under that clause. So I don't I don't disagree with that, uh, and I do think that the 13th the necessity of the 13th Amendment is some evidence of uh, of the original understanding of the commerce power. Now. Uh, as Randy knows, uh, I'm not an originalist, so uh, I have a, a different view about what implications that might have for the national power today. Um, uh, but uh, but I don't think he's wrong on the facts there. So um, as to the uh, relationship between the 13th and 14th Amendment, I think uh, that's that's also right. I mean, I think it's I think it's very hard to uh, make a to come up with a a, 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 a reasonable judgment about. Uh, what implications Section 2 of the 13th Amendment, as it would have been understood in uh, 1865, might have for congressional power today, insofar as I think a lot of those, and I think the same is true with Section, Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, uh, a lot of the practices that we would imagine Congress applying those amendments to today were simply not within the contemplation of, of, the, uh, of the Reconstruction Congress. Um, I, I quite agree that uh, there were uh, some in the some some even in the Republican Party, including John Bingham, um, who doubted the congressional power under Section Two of the Thirteenth Amendment to go even so far as the Civil Rights Act of 1866. Uh, I think that question, as a matter of modern understanding, is is settled by uh, Jones v. Alfred H. Mayer from 1968 and by Lundy v. Clary. Um, but as a matter of original understanding, I think I think it is I think it's right that uh, there was some there was some doubt uh, about at the scope of Section 2, uh, and, uh, and, and, and there's also some diversity uh, of views about that. Fascinating. Well, some interesting agreement about the original understanding of the amendment. Uh, now I'm going to uh, turn it over to my great guest, 
host Tom Donnelly to tease out what both of you agree and disagree about contemporary applications of the 13th Amendment. Take it away, Tom. Sure. So, so Randy, what kind of interpretation of the 13th Amendment results from, from using an originalist approach? I mean, what, what sort of um, you know, evils did the, 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 the framing generation there uh, contemplate, and what kinds of rights are supported through um, an originalist reading today? Well, I'm sure all originalists wouldn't agree with the exact scope of the 13th Amendment. Um, and, you know, originalists don't agree, all originalists don't agree on any, very much of anything. In fact, we have more agreement about the original meaning of the 13th Amendment on this program than you usually have when you get a room full of originals uh, arguing about things. Uh, but I do think that one of the ways of looking at the 13th Amendment is to say that um, uh, slavery, with, by abolishing slavery, um, well, the 13th Amendment clearly abolished slavery, and the opposite of slavery is liberty. Um, you have liberty on the one pole of the spectrum, you have, you have slavery on the other pole of the spectrum. And what the South attempted to do after uh, the 13th Amendment was enacted, uh, which then brought forth the Civil Rights Act of 1866, is they really sought to gradually or step-by-step re-enslave um, the freedmen as a result of incremental restrictions on their liberty, uh, which by which basically reintroduce what could literally be called the incidence of slavery, um, if not the badge itself. So the incidence of slavery were restrictive labor laws, restrictive rights of contract, restrictive pe- property ownership, restrictive ability to travel uh, from one place to another. Um, uh, there were all kinds of schemes that were hatched, including some that took advantage of the exception of the 13th Amendment for uh, imprisonment uh, for crimes upon which that, that people have been duly convicted convicted. Um, And so for these reasons, uh, the 13th Amendment could be thought to be aimed um, at any of these restrictions of liberty that are incidents that would be uh, taken as their individually incidents to slavery and taken as a whole would be slavery itself. Um, The I I would say the argument that would somewhat qualify that one, uh, and I myself have not taken a position on either one of these positions, but uh, the argument that would somewhat qualify that is that the 13th Amendment was enacted against a history of chattel slavery, and particularly a, a practice of chattel slavery with respect to um, African Americans. And and so it is because it's aimed at that, it's clearly aimed at that. Um, it talks about slavery itself. Um, it's not something we have to bring to the amendment. We know that's what the amendment was about. These restrictions on liberty um, ought to be um, are only reachable by the 13th Amendment if they actually are intending to bring back slavery piece by piece, which is exactly what the black coats were doing in the South. They're not aimed more generally at restrictions on liberty that are not aimed at bringing back slavery in one form or another. And so it would be relatively um, confined to situations which we would currently think would be based on race, for example, provided it was determined or it was it, we reached the conclusion that laws were basically surreptitious ways of step-by-step re-implementing slavery. Most current restrictions on liberty cannot be characterized that way. So at that, so that would provide a limitation on what the scope of the 13th Amendment is. I don't think that the 14th Amendment is so cabined, even though courts have held, the early courts like the Slaughterhouse cases did hold, or at least they intimated that it might be so narrowly cabined. I don't think it was. And so the fact that the 13th Amendment gave rise to the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which gave rise to what you might think of as a do-over amendment, which is the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment does have a broader reach than the 13th Amendment does, and I think it would reach beyond incidents of slavery to restrictions on liberty generally. Thanks so much, Randy. And 
I know, Jamal, you said that you, you were not an originalist, but I, I wonder if you have any, uh, any, any responses or thoughts on, on what Randy just said right there? I, so the, the only immediate response is I, I agree with much of what Randy says. Uh, I, I do think that the, the argument that, that the 13th Amendment uh, and Section 2 of the 13th Amendment could, should, would only be able to reach uh, badges and incidents such that the worry was that someone was trying to re-implement slavery, uh, which, which Randy did not necessarily associate himself with, but characterized as the potential limitation uh, uh, deriving from the original understanding. Uh, I, I think uh, I think that would be a very uncharitable view of the reach of, the, of Section Two. Uh, I think uh, I think it'd be, I think I think even someone who is skeptical about uh, modern progressive claims about congressional power under the 13th Amendment uh, might might agree that uh, uh, that uh, hierarchical systems of of, uh, of of pervasive racial stigmatization, so that even if one was not trying to bring back slavery, one was trying to maintain the system of racial subordination that slavery represented. So slavery is not just a practice of preventing someone from uh, or forcing someone to work is also a practice of maintaining a, a pervasive racial hierarchy um, that uh, that I think even within a relatively narrow view of uh, Section 2 of the 13th Amendment as originally understood, one could get that far. Um, but that said, I, I, uh, I actually agree with Randy that uh, the 14th Amendment uh, can be understood more broadly um, and uh, and and I can very much very much can reach beyond the badges and incidents of slavery. You know, I think that I think that where you see the arguments about the reach of the Thirteenth Amendment push uh, among progressive scholars is well, how far can you push it beyond race, for example? So if one thinks about uh, practices of coverture, for example and uh, the kinds of violence that was tolerated and even encouraged within marriage in the 19th century. Uh, uh, can we think of, of certain kinds of gender relations as being akin to, to slavery, such that Congress, through something like the Violence Against Women Act, could reach uh, those kinds of practices via Section 2 of the 13th Amendment? Uh, uh, there are certain articles written about uh, whether certain kinds, certain forms of child abuse could be reached through, this, through the 13th Amendment. Uh, and, and as I've mentioned, um, labor rights uh, could be understood really on both sides, as Randy suggests, actually, um, uh, as uh, both opposition to labor laws and um, promotion of labor laws could be understood on some theory as uh, deriving from, uh, from, from opposition to economic coercion. Uh, and, and that's where I think the uh, that's where I think some some disputes lie, and where 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 I would fall on really all of those uh, all of those uh, uh, issues is to say that Section One of the Thirteenth Amendment uh, uh, need not be read to cover those practices, but that if Congress wanted to reach those via Section Two, that uh, it would be appropriate to give Congress some deference in understanding uh, what slavery means, uh, and that they can go beyond what uh, what they're found what they're generation that uh, ratified the amendment would have thought of slavery as meaning. Great. Well, thanks. Yes, I, I, Randy, I'm going to ask you to, to respond. And um, essentially, do you agree with Jamal that 
under Section 2, Congress could legislate against battered women or uh, uh, against gender discrimination? Uh, and if not, uh, do you think more narrowly, could the amendment provide justification for other race-based laws, such as the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2009, where the 13th Amendment was explicitly invoked? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, suggest that, uh, at least in the first part of Jamal's um, uh, characterization of where he thought he was going beyond what I was saying, I basically agree with uh, that part. Um, I, I do think that um, um, systemic racial subordination is exactly what the South was trying to accomplish. It didn't matter that they could no longer call it slavery. They were trying to reimpose one. It's, it's sort of like liberty is a bundle of sticks, which we're sometimes taught in law school. Uh, and, and so the slaves were given all the bundles of sticks. They were trying to take one stick out of the bundle at a time. Um, and with a with a, with racial animus in mind, so, and I do I don't think this is an uncharitable reading of the of the of the Thirteenth Amendment because it talks about slavery and involuntary servitude, which had a meaning and a context, um, um, and it was race based. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be race based. I mean, women could be enslaved. They hadn't been enslaved. Coverture did involve the subordination of women, but not the enslavement of women. Um, black women were enslaved, of course, um, but there's a difference between other forms of subordination and discrimination and slavery and involuntary servitude, which is something that had a history. I just want to suggest – I just want to uh, uh, underscore my agreement with the initial part of Jamal's response, which is that I think that um, the amendment could be directly aimed at after that. If you go beyond that to the last part of what Jamal said and what you just asked me about, Jeff, I just don't know. Uh, I don't have a firm opinion about it. I'm skeptical. I have to say that. I'm skeptical that the amendment can be stretched that far um, because of the reason for the reasons that I think I've already suggested, have, having to do with what it was originally about and what what the what it originally refers to. I'm not talking about its underlying purpose. I'm talking about what it expressly is aimed at, which is slavery and involuntary servitude. Wonderful. Well, this has been an extraordinarily civil discussion, and it's time for closing arguments. Uh, Jamal, can you tell our listeners? what you think the historic and contemporary significance of the 13th Amendment is and why it's important to study and celebrate it today? Well, I think it's important to study it uh, because it's a very important part of our history and uh, really changes the course of the constitutional history of, of the nation. And so um, the United States stands for a very different thing. Uh, in, uh, in December of 1865, and it stood for, stood for even the day before that. So um, so it's important, very important if anyone cares about the history of the country. But uh, even in terms of contemporary significance, uh, as I, I suggested, I think it's important for uh, for uh, those who push certain visions of of a policy that might be grounded uh, ultimately in certain kinds of constitutional values to uh, to, to have a face. Uh, for uh, arguing that the Constitution supports those values. And I think the 13th Amendment has has the potential to be a mobilizing force, um, just as it was for uh, members of, of the progressive labor movement, um, just as it was for members of the uh, Justice Department in the 1940s who were bringing prosecutions against um, peonage and other uh, forms of economic coercion. And indeed today, uh, as we are engaged in a national debate about economic inequality, about social welfare, um, what is the constitutional significance of legislative action 
that is intended to uh, overcome uh, a, a persistent marginalization of certain communities, uh, uh, the Thirteenth Amendment can provide a home, uh, not a home again um, in, in terms of litigation before a judge, but a home in terms of uh, someone who wants to think about uh, the, the the constitutional significance of uh, policy objectives in this area. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And Randy, same question to you. What is the historic and contemporary significance of the 13th Amendment, and why should we study and celebrate it today? Well, I don't want to reiterate what I opened with, which was talking about how the 13th Amendment uh, powerfully supports the idea that Congress's powers are more limited than they're currently interpreted as being by the Supreme Court, um, and uh, particularly the Commerce Power and Necessary and Proper Clause. But what I do want to say is that if you take the original meaning of those powers and you do interpret them narrowly, the 13th and 14th Amendments, but uh, the 13th included, come to the fore. Section 2 of the 13th Amendment and Section 5 of the, of the 14th Amendment become much, much more significant because those are the powers that would be specifically aimed at racial subordination and, in the case of the 14th Amendment, other forms of discrimination like sex, sex-based discrimination that's irrational and arbitrary. It would be Section 2 of the 13th Amendment and Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, which, as I say, is somewhat of a do-over of the 13th Amendment, that would justify most, if not all, and I don't know if it's all, but at least it would be most, of modern civil rights laws, even in the absence of an expanded commerce power. As you all know, most of these laws were initially upheld under the commerce power because after the New Deal, the commerce power was so capacious um, that um, it could be used to easily justify many of these laws, even though there were justices at the time who thought it would be better if these laws were justified under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment. And I think it would have been better, in part because by upholding these laws under the Commerce Clause, it suggests that what makes those civil rights laws justified or warranted has to do with economic um, regulation and the power over the economy rather than the gross injustice of racial subordination and sex-based uh, subordination and discrimination, which is exactly why we modified the Constitution to add the 13th and 14th Amendments to address. So my argument for the contemporary, I mean, among many uh, other aspects of the contemporary significance is that we should look to the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment, Section 2 and Section 5, to justify civil rights laws that are actually aimed at the kinds of evils that those amendments were enacted to address. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. I'm going to give the last word to our great partner, Tom Donnelly. Uh, before I do that, I need to pay tribute to the late Doug Kendall, the late president of the Constitutional Accountability Center. Doug was a constitutional visionary who conceived of the idea of the second founding initiative. He would be smiling as he heard our superbly substantive conversation uh, today and proud of what he created, which is five years of celebration and debate and education about the Reconstruction Amendments. Tom, tell our listeners some of the things we have planned for the second founding initiative going forward and also what the listeners can do to get involved in this thrilling project of constitutional education. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Jeff. I mean, part of this initiative really is having conversations like this between two of the leading legal scholars in the country, both left and right, and looking at these amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, what we're calling our nation's second founding, as both a, a, a site of agreement but also a framework for debate. And I know that's very much what um, Doug's vision for this initiative was, to bring people from across the spectrum 
uh, together to uh, understand the transformational power of these amendments. Um, and you know, in 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 the months and and years ahead, uh, we're going to be planning a, a series of events, a series of podcast debates, just like this one, um, uh, and a, a series of writings uh, that really highlight both the historic the history behind these amendments, but also their contemporary relevance. Um, you could check out more at uh, secondfounding.org. Um, and you know, I, I I look forward to continuing this conversation for the next five years. Wonderful. Uh, we do as well. Uh, Tom, Randy, Jamal, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Nicandro Inachi. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Danielle Evans. Get the latest constitutional news and continue today's conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, at constitutionctr. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. Just search for us in the iTunes store. While you're there, leave us a review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall, featuring conversations and debate presented here at the center across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. Uh, tonight we're recording another second founding event with Eric Foner, the great Reconstruction historian, and Richard Brookheiser, who has a great new book out on Lincoln and the Constitution. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out all of our sibling podcasts at iTunes.com backslash Panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.